0: This is Vis-a-Vis, a podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Programme at Columbia University. Vis-a-Vis features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities, Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and École Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face-to-face with, or as we say in French, Vis-a-Vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Public debate today often focuses on uncertainties about the future, what to do about climate change, how to prevent the next pandemic, how to cope with technological revolutions. But many issues that divide societies also have to do with the past. How do we ensure continuity with the values that have shaped us? How should we remember the crimes of the past? How should victims and descendants of victims be recognized or compensated? What is the role of collective memory in shaping a nation's identity? An illuminating book entitled La Mémoire Collective en Question, Collective Memory in Question, published by Presse Universitaire de France earlier this year, explores in 50 chapters some of these crucial questions. In order to cast light on these issues, Vis-a-Vis is honored to welcome Sarah Gensberger, the book's co-editor and Carol Gluck, one of its contributors. Sarah Gensberger is professor at Sciences Po and research director at the French National Research Council. Her work focuses on public action and the transformation of the state through the study of public policies in the field of memory. Sarah Gensberger is the author of several books, including Beyond Memory, Can We Really Learn from the Past? with Sandrine Lefranc, published in 2020, Memory on My Doorstep, Chronicles of the Bataclan Neighborhood, Paris, 2015-2016, published by Leuven University Press in 2019, and National Policy, Global Memory, the Commemoration of the Righteous from Jerusalem to Paris, 1942-2007, among many others. She is the president of the Memory Studies Association. Carol Gluck is George Sanson Professor of History at Columbia University. She specializes in modern Japan from the late 19th century to the present, international relations, World War II, and history writing and public memory in Asia and the West. She received her BA from Wesley and her PhD from Columbia University. Carol Gluck is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. She is a founding member of Columbia's Committee on Global Thought. Her numerous books include Japan's Modern Myths, 1985, Asia in Western and World History, 1997, and Thinking with the Past, the Japanese and Modern History, 2017. Sarah Gensberger, Carol Gluck, welcome to both of you. Sarah, let me start with you. And um, could you start us off by defining the term collective memory?
1: So to answer your question, I must start by uh, distinguishing two meanings of the term collective memory. So what is a little bit tricky here, it is at the same time a concept and a word for scholar's field, but at the same time also a word for everyday discussion and public debate. So first, for scientists, it was been forged as a way to understand the social dimension of memory. So in a way, it cannot be opposed to individual memory, because any memory, even spoken out by an individual, is collective. It's framed by a lot of social dimensions and dynamics. So this will be the um, scientific way of using the term. But at the same time, we are fully aware that in public debate, collective memory is everywhere and has also this meaning of being a shared content because it's a, a kind of utopia. We should build collective memory as something that all people all over the world, in each nation, in each group, should share as a way to create a consensus and cooperation. So what is very interesting for me as a researcher is to work on this tension between the two conceptions of collective memory.
0: I see. Thank you. And perhaps to build on this, um, can you enlighten us about the actual role that a collective memory plays in a society through commemorations, um, museums, national holidays, collective memory is often mobilized and and utilized by states to create a sense of community, to create a social cohesion among uh, a society's citizens. And different social groups within uh, a community, uh, a national community, can also use collective memory to create a sense of collective identity or to contest the um, official version of history that is uh, put forward by the state. Should collective memory be instrumentalized in that way? Is that a, a legitimate use of collective memory? Or should we recognize that it has an intrinsic value, that it is a form of expression of collective identity?
2: Well, let me start by saying that there are other terms for collective memory that that can help us a little here. I tend to use the word public memory Uh, partly because I don't want to give the impression that anything is collective in the sense that a collectivity sees the past in the same way. No one is in control of it, except in totalitarian states, and even there, there is no single memory in in a nation, a society, an ethnic group, a family. People have different views of the past, and they may not even be consistent themselves. The importance here is is to see it as a process. And once you see it as a process, then you see there are many actors involved in this process. You have to ask what exactly is being instrumentalized, for example, in China today, where, like almost every other country in the world, increasingly, the past is being instrumentalized or weaponized after decades of talking about. China's century of national humiliation, Xi Jinping, the current leader, has changed the language. Now he's talking about national rejuvenation, right? Both of those slogans are designed for national unity and preventing opposition, creating support for the regime. Give it another name if you like. It's the ideology of the regime. It's what goes into the textbooks. It's what goes out on the, on the state media. But the state which tries to control memory is not always capable of doing it. They may be able to control it in the public space, but they can't control it in the society. So no one is in control. It's not unified ever. It will always remain conflicted with, even within an individual, and it's malleable. It changes and we don't always, not always aware of it. Some of the most interesting research has been about how we don't even realize that we change our own personal pasts. We remember our own stories differently, which is, you know, certainly unsettles the whole sort of solidity of memory. And here's where I'll answer the identity question. Uh, Views of the past or memories of the past are not only about identity. The fact that identity is a big issue today says something about our times, about identity politics, about gender politics, about ethnic politics. We live in an identitarian moment, so that it looks like memory is all about identity, but in fact, Memories of the past are used for all kinds of things. They're used for inspiration. They're used for celebration. They're used for, for ethical lessons, you know, the whole lessons of the past. So it's very important to realize that we're working in a specific moment of memory when, on the one hand, you do have states weaponizing national histories all over the world. And two, that the um, this question of identity is a specific historical phenomenon, much as the whole emphasis on victimization.
0: We'll be coming back to the issue of victims because I think it's central. I'd like to turn to you, Sarah, and perhaps to the French context, where um, the idea of the Roman national as a kind of unifying national narrative has been really at the center of uh, French consciousness and used also perhaps um, as a tool by a number of French uh, governments in order to create a sense of collective identity. This idea is closely linked to the Republican ideals, freedom, equality, uh, laicite or secularism. But at the same time, it has come under strain in recent times, particularly with the emergence of multiple community-based memories, which do not necessarily see themselves portrayed or reflected in this idea of a unifying narrative. So whether we're talking about survivors of the Shoah, the Pied Noir, uh, the Arki, the descendants of enslaved or colonized people who are developing their own form of collective memory that doesn't necessarily fit in that roman national framework. So my question to you is, is there still a roman national in France? Has there ever been one? Is it important? Do societies really need a cohesive, single memory narrative? Or can they actually accommodate different perspectives on the past?
1: This is very important because memory studies are a very transnational field, but if we want to be honest, it is also in a way still very nationalist field, not only uh, about politics, but also about scholars themselves. And so each historiography, each field of research is still, and I think maybe more, even more in France, very much um, nationally defined. And in France, as a topic of research, It's important to point out the fact that precisely the very, um, development of research and work labeled as about memory, precisely as a way to deal with what the contributors of this field have, um, framed as a crisis of this national roman national. But now we know because we have a lot of anthropological and also a lot of innovative historical work that this national Roman national, this national narrative, has not always been a real thing. It's been more of an elite narrative, and it's been embodied in what we just talked about, museums, monuments, etc. But on the field and with people, it's been reenacted and appropriated in very different ways. And Finally, um, the fact that you put into the equation all these new memories, group memories, as they say in France, mémoire communautaire, in a quite of a negative way when uh, the people who use this uh, terminology uh, use them. Yeah, that's true. We have, and in my opinion, it's a good thing, a very more diversified narratives of the past in French society. But I think... All these memories have in common a relation to the state, so it's very specific to France. All this memory of uh, the Jewish victims, or of the Pien Noirs, the Archi, um slavery also in France, they all have been developed in a close interaction and framing with the French state, each country, has a way of dealing with the past not only with such past, but as a past in general, and as the the place and the role and the uh, expectation they give to memory in their society.
0: You mentioned the role of the state in France in particular. Um, Carol, you've looked at the role of the Japanese state, uh, and in the chapter that you wrote for La Mémoire Collective uh, en Question, you tackle the issue of memory activists in relation to the case of comfort women, uh, women and girls who were forced into uh, sexual slavery by the Japanese army during World War II. While human rights activists um, have made strides in in bringing the case of comfort women to prominence, some governments and the Japanese government in particular try to resist it by removing references to this issue in textbooks, for example. How does the case of of comfort women teach us about this process of calling to attention events, which uh, governments tend to ignore or want to
2: ignore? Mm. I actually thought that I was in some way benighted because here I was in France writing about Japan coming from the United States. And I thought to myself, three countries, each of which thinks it's absolutely exceptional, each of which has this national romance, if you like, Uh, And it's blinkered and I thought, I I must have done something wrong in my last life that I would be, you know, involved with these three countries. And then I discovered when I started to study the formation of public memory of the Second World War around the world, I discovered France and Japan and America may be at an extreme on the spectrum, but most of the countries are toward that end of the spectrum. In other words, there is a national past that they will insist on and they will change it when different people come to power. Uh, Erdogan has changed the Turkish past to pretty much obliterate the Byzantine period and center on Ottoman history. Uh, Modi wishes to obliterate the Muslim past, which was a glorious long period, the Mughal past, in favor of the Hindu past. So these particular national stories Almost every country, at least every country I've studied, has one of them. They're not real, but they are in some way active because they do uh, determine in countries that have national textbooks, which is most countries, they do determine what's taught in the schools. They do determine what gets commemorated in official capacity. And they do determine what those leaders will say in, in international situations about their country. Um, So one thing that's really important is that memory is national, it remains national because we remain in a world of nation states. What is transnational is actually the shared norms and practices of public memory, which are themselves a historical product, largely since the Second World War. It's something that I call a global memory culture. And by that, I do not mean they have the same idea. What I mean is they share the norms and practices. And so that's why you get every group wanting its museum. That's why the politics of apology, which was unthinkable in 1945, unthinkable, is now standard. That's why the demands for compensation. That's why the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. And that's where the comfort women come in. Because the Comfort Women is a very interesting issue that shows the changes that have taken place in the processes of public memory since the mid-20th century, mostly since then. Uh, and I could give you lots of examples, international law, civil law, the role of testimony. Do you know that, that testimony was never considered a way of knowing the past, but now the era of the witness the so-called right to the truth. These are all things that have evolved the right to memory, as it's called. I could go on and on. Uh, And the comfort women actually exemplify each of those kinds of things. And so the fact that the Japanese government tries to tear down every statue of the comfort women that's built all over the world, what is the result of the Japanese foreign ministry trying to get the the governments in the state of New Jersey or in the city of Berlin or in, the, in Manila to stop the statues, the reaction is another statue goes up somewhere else. The Japanese government's denial of the comfort women is actually not working. It's not working globally. The comfort women are known. In fact, they're mentioned in every one of the arguments that led to the um, unprecedented making of rape a crime against humanity in the International Criminal Court, and this is
0: all really the result of the work of memory activists, as you describe them, uh, which emerge from civil society. So, so they are really in a power struggle against the state, but not really.
2: Well, yes, of course, but they're also they're also in struggle against one another because guess what? The South Korean memory activists are much more concerned within the national memory frame, much more concerned with the comfort women as a colonial violation than as a violation of the human rights of women. The human rights activists in Geneva couldn't care less about about Korea having been a colony of Japan for 45 years. So they don't agree among each other. But it's not only civil society. I mean, the U.S. government, the German government, a lot of the government's pressing on Japan, not to mention the governments of China, South Korea, and the other countries where there were comfort women uh, critiquing Japan. So there, there's power struggles there too. That's what I'm trying to explain, that it's not, no one is really in control. But I will say that the comfort women are an example of the kinds of memory change that can happen when you have enough of these uh, forces working around an issue, even if they don't agree on what the issue is. And so one reason why this is a good example is because these women, when they began to speak out in the 1990s, were already very elderly. They were scattered across 10 countries. They did not know one another. Many of them remained silent about what happened to them for half a century. Some of them were illiterate. Uh, So it took a lot. It took the war in Bosnia it took the rape camps in Bosnia to bring rape to the... You see, you see what I'm trying to say about the process? So yes, power and politics and social position is involved in every memory. Every, we, we live in society. We are embedded institutions. We are in, in, in webs of power relations. Right. And, and
0: another aspect of this evolution of, of, of the norms and practices of memory, it seems to me, is that our societies are commemorating events that are closer and closer to the present time as well. And one example that um, you, uh, Sa, have been focusing on in, in particular is uh, the commemoration of the 13th of November attacks uh in in Paris you published along with uh, Jerome Truc a book called The Memorials of November 13th and in the aftermath of the 2015 terror attacks in Paris there was an immediate process of commemoration but also an immediate process of trying to understand what that process of of constituting, of creating a collective memory so quickly after an event meant. Do you feel that um, a certain historical distance is necessary for the constitution of collective memory? Or are we indeed witnessing a time when collective forms of memory are emerging much more quickly after events are are happening?
1: I think it's clear that we are in a time where the time lapse between the event and its uh, memorialization and archivization, if I can use the term, um, has shortened a lot. You took the example of terrorist attack, but since this event, we had COVID. And it was uh, a huge, very striking phenomenon for me because um, some Italian uh, colleague used the term preemptive memory. Like mm. the event is on its way, and we, we create archives of the event to make sure that in the future we will remember the event that is not already past. Of course, in the past also, we had like people in the Warsaw Ghetto uh, said we are going to collect traces of what has been happening to us. But it was a little bit different because there was also an issue of claiming for justice in the future. Now it's less political from the start. Of course, everything is politics, but it's not claimed as being political. First, I think it tells a lot about the social value we give to memory in contemporary societies. Why do we have these preemptive things? Because we think that to change the future, we need to make sure to have traces of the past. In a way, it brings us back to the very beginning of all these memory studies thing Carol and I have been involved in. Because first and foremost, when scholars have been uh, starting getting involved in the field that they themselves called memory studies, they thought of themselves in a way as activists. They wanted to change the world. They wanted to use and to speak of the past and think of how to keep traces of the past as a way to change contemporary society. So is there a continuum between the very fact that memory studies exist as a field and this preemptive archivization? Okay, but on the other side, by doing this, by really being obsessed by the collection of traces of the events, why the event is taking place, we often empty all the political dimension of the event because it's more about trauma, it's more about mourning, it's more about this very important of course as a as a person as a citizen, I'm very much concerned about that, so, okay, I share. I share the pain, I share the loss, I share everything. I I've, Myself, I was living in front of the Bataclan building, etc. But as a researcher, I ask myself, what kind of space does it leave for conflictualization, for uh, bringing back politics, bringing back also inequality, social inequality into that? Like, I can take an example. So since COVID, I, I made a new empirical studies and I studied the... um collecting initiative of archives in France in relation to COVID. So 100 Archive Center decided to collect what they called ordinary memories. So they really made a huge effort to open new form of collection, asking citizens, any kind of people to come and, and share documents, pictures. So it was really grassroots memorialization, right? But when you study with the basic tool of sociology, who were the participants to this collect and what kind of documents have been collecting, you see that it's still very much segregated in terms of um, social class, level of education, ethnicity, place of re- residency, etc. As I said, it was very much open and accessible in principle to everyone. But the fact of thinking of ourselves as having something to tell for the future about the past is not neutral. It's framed also by the power relation, as Carol said, about other examples, and the structure of society. So this is all the things that I, as a researcher, I want to put back in the new and future form of memory studies.
2: Bravo, Sarah. I couldn't agree more. I think both of us feel that that memory studies has gotten to be so big, and memory has gotten to be such a big issue that it's, I mean, some governments have ministries (laughs) to to run this, and memory studies has gotten so big that we don't define it analytically enough. We let memory kind of march along as if it were not embedded in every kind of psychological, social, political, economic, cultural um, web. In addition to that, I think that both people who value memory, ordinary people and scholar people who who are studying memory tend to think of memory as a good thing. And this is what goes back to the duty to remember uh, that memory is an obligation because its opposite is forgetting and we will never be able to repair the grievances of the past for the sake of the future. But there's a little bit of a, almost a moral, moralistic attitude toward it, which in turn tends to make people to think that memories can be reconciled. I mean, the word reconciliation is all over. There are memories that will not be reconciled, will not be reconciled. And is it
0: necessarily a bad thing? I mean, do we, do we have to reconcile memories?
2: Good thing, bad thing apart, it's not going to happen. And Elizabeth Helene, who is the dry of memory studies in Latin America, has said, he said, there is no way that the grandmothers of the Plata de Mayo will ever sit down in the same room with the descendants of the government that disappeared their families. So then you have to ask the question, not how we're going to reconcile. If you look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's and and their societies, you'll see that not how you're going to reconcile, but how you're going to manage to live in a society with conflicting memories. So it becomes a different question. So these are the kinds of things that I think memory studies, I think we do need to, to become more critical, more analytical, and less memory only focused, which is what causes the disappearance of politics. It's what causes the disappearance of class. And it's a very important, the, the emphasis on story right now, everybody has a story to tell. Everybody doesn't feel they have a story to tell. And indeed, even the the kind of agency necessary to say, I have a story to tell, I have photos to bring to you of my experience of COVID, of course, it's embedded in social positioning and therefore inequality. So memory studies needs to, if I can use the the term, it needs to get real.
0: Right. And one thing that both of you has mentioned is the notion of trauma, which seems uh, to me also to be quite important in this field. And I was wondering, do you think that there is a risk with the notion of trauma to have a reductive understanding of of collective memory? And and can trauma really be the prism through which collective memory should be understood?
2: Okay, three points quickly, because I want to hear Sarah on this one. The first point is that the reason trauma is so important in the understanding and study of memory has to do with the kind of memories that were at stake when this whole memory business started, which is to say the 20th century, the atrocities, the darkness of the 20th century past. Trauma plus psychoanalysis, we had the tools of psychoanalysis. So trauma got an outsized importance from the beginning partly because we had the the psychoanalysis and partly because we had that kind of a past. I happen to think that that's historically determined and that trauma is, number two, trauma is not the only way or even the best way to approach views of the past because trauma by definition is individual by psychoanalytic definition. And when you start talking about collective trauma, you're talking metaphorically. No collectivity can experience trauma. So I think it's a a category error. And number three, there is no question that subsequent generations can remember with emotion and passion. The United States Civil War, if you go to the South, it's happened yesterday. And we're five, I don't know how many generations since that. But that is not trauma. And that is even not culpability. So some people say, and and in fact, uh, one of the German chancellors once said it, but he said it in France, so it doesn't count because he should have said it in Germany. He said, contemporary Germans are responsible, but they are not culpable. You're not guilty of something your ancestors did, but you are responsible to confront the dark pasts of your particular society. And so... Trauma is the wrong language for that. Trauma is the wrong language for responsibility. Sarah,
0: yeah.
1: Not surprisingly, I, of course, share uh, Carol's view, but I, I may point out two aspects that can maybe help us to really understand the importance of what Carol just said. So this concept of reconciliation, and she's been critical against it, we could say the same about the concept of resilience, resilience, the concept, which is very much linked to trauma and comes also from an individual scale, but has been used as the scale of collectivity what will be a non-resilient society? It doesn't exist because as long as a society is, in a way, it's resilient, right? The very fact of the existence of society is a proof of a resilience. Which brings me back to a second dimension I, uh, Carol um, referred to, but I want not really to insist and to stress on this. For me, the issue with trauma is... Of course, it exists, but um, it stresses on the dimension of rupture. You have a time and you have a time after, and everything is different in a way. And what I want to do as a sociologist, is put back continuity in the way we see things. And it brings us back to the responsibility thing. Why in the south of um, the US, it's like the civil war happened two weeks ago. It's because you have so much continuity in the structure of society. I really want to call for more attention to this issue of continuity in the way we work on memory today as uh, scholars.
0: This is fascinating. I'd like to perhaps conclude with a question to both of you around the idea of responsibility and the so-called ethical dimension of memory. In the book, um, Carol There is also a chapter on the the emotional dimension of museums, for example, and the way in which they uh, are geared at creating a sense of purpose or action, uh, driving people who visit the museum to come out with a determination to get involved or engaged or to get a sense that they need to prevent or act in a way that they might help prevent the occurrence of of future mass crimes. I'm just wondering whether these collective experiences through museums and commemorations, whether they can create perhaps not a a universal sense of collective memory, but uh, a greater sense of solidarity towards the past of other nations or other cultures or other communities.
2: Unfortunately, Memory is ethically neutral. There's two things that have to happen. You have to be ready to receive the message. You can watch the terrible things happening to the immigrants and the boat sinking in the Mediterranean and walk away and have your hamburger, okay? Because whether you're familiar, too familiar with it, whatever, you're not receptive. The second thing is you have to be willing to do something about things. Now, people walk out of museums, some of them with a never again, or nunca mas, never more, but you're not gonna do anything about it. So unless there's a receptivity there, that's, and also there's a willingness to extend yourself, not necessarily to go out and save the immigrants, but at least to pay attention to the issue. Now, you can't use memory that way. That said, you can certainly create a public memory of the Holocaust, which has come to stand as a traveling trope for genocide. And that didn't happen by going to Auschwitz. So the answer is yes, but not to going through a museum. It just, memory doesn't have that power over the public. Your personal memory may have that power over you. So that's how I would react to that. Don't put your eggs for the future in the basket of the past.
0: I think that's a very, very good uh, formulation, Sa.
2: First, to
1: uh, rebound on what Carol just said about the um, museum visits. So I did several actually in-depth study of this kind of visits. And one thing I want to add is the fact that people see the political and ethic message they've entered the museum with, right? So for example, uh, the very same museums, which was about the centenary of the First World War in Paris, someone coming from a very committed pro-European background saw in the exhibition a celebration of Europe as a place of peace and the war is a very bad thing, etc. But someone coming from nationalist and military background will see here Uh, a praise of the sacrifice of uh, French people in the First World War. And uh, some colleagues from Carol and I very well know from Belgium around Valérie Rosou and Olivier Luminez, they did in the past this huge study about an exhibition in Brussels, which was presenting the atrocities the German people had done against the civilians in Belgium during the First World War. They were convinced that by visiting the exhibition, everyone will be against the war and very pacifist, etc. And the conclusion is that most of the people who came out of this exhibition, they wanted to have war with the Germans. They hated the German after the exhibition a lot more than before. And to go back to this culture of memory... One of the impact memory has today is the fact that even if, as Carol said about the comfort women, people all share an agenda around this comfort women memory, but from different perspective, it has an impact. So, If we go back to the question you asked me before about the romance national in France, and was it a bad thing in a way to have different groups' memory? It's not a bad thing, in my opinion, because Mm -hmm. the most important thing for memory to have an impact is that several people get involved, even if they don't agree on the past or on the content, but they agree on the fact that it's important to speak of the past. And this is where the impact comes. As long as people disagree about the past, but agree about the fact that it's important to speak about the past. In a way, we are in a democratic setting and we can move forward. And maybe this new kind of perspective we should try to have on memory issues today.
0: I'm so grateful to both of you, uh, Carol Gluck, uh, Sarah Gensberger, for this thought-provoking conversation which opened... New perspectives on collective uh, memory for all of us. I'd like to end by reminding our listeners that uh, La Mémoire Collective en Question, Collective Memory in Questions, was published by Presse Universitaire de France in 2023. Thank you to both of you.
2: Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank Thank you.
0: Vis-a-vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris-en-Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica hunter Hart and Georgia O'Neill, and I'm Emmanuel Ketan. Special thanks to Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research and collaboration between the US and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter X, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.